Blog Talk Radio. The animal, the animal, trap, 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 till the cage is full. The cage is full, the day is new, and everyone is waiting, waiting on you and you. Think of all the roads, think of all their crossings, taking steps is easy, standing still is hard, remember all their faces, remember all their voices, everything is different, the second time around. I'm the fucking warden, Sean Comer. You're not. And you're listening to the fourth edition of Litchfield Live, our annual look at Netflix's flagship original, Orange is the New Black. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us this this year. With me, as always, is my personal guard captain, my personal side boob, the mandated reporter, and his secret is, frankly, he's always mortified. One of my best friends on earth from the land of gators that climb fucking fences. How are you this evening, Mark Rodlich? I'm glad. I'm happy to say that I ain't bothered, been bothered by no gators. <laughs> they haven't crawled into my house. God damn it. In your state, the gators have now learned to climb vertical structures. It may be time to follow Bugs Bunny's lead, and I'm sorry, just dynamite you all loose for the good of the rest of the United States. <laughs> you know, uh, my friend and I were talking. My friend and I were talking about that the other day about how uh, the Gators seem to be mounting a counter strike. You know, every every year, you just more and more stories about animals just deciding they've had just about enough of humanity's shit. We see things like uh, octopi that can apparently climb glass walls um, and that can move actually out of water and across rocks at frightening speed when their prey won't just cooperate and get in the water. Um, Shit like... uh, uh, in the last year, I've seen both lions and bears prove they know how to open car doors. Sometimes, I think just to make just to make a point to the two-legged sausages that squeal when you bite them. And then the other day, I go and look on Facebook, and there's goddamn Wally Gator just climbing the fucking fence. <laughs> and we wonder how they got into Disney World. What well, I wonder that, is how it didn't, what, what I wonder what I wonder is how the damn gator didn't end, just end up with a fast pass. <laughs> you know, I've walked that beach. If you're referring to that horrible, horrible story where the the gator crawled out of the briny deep the, at the Grand Floridian yes. and, and, and took the poor the, kid under water, um, what people need to realize is Orlando is a swamp. Now, it's been remade 
into a theme park, but it but it is a swamp, and gators are not sharks. Mm-hmm. They can come out of open no. water. You know, and so yeah. people are like, oh, parents are dumb and all this other stuff. It's like, no, gators get into people's houses. We took oh, yeah. their land, <laughs> and they want it back. Oh, yeah. Well, and make no mistake, I, I don't, I, I don't make too much light of that because that's obviously a very tragic situation. But yeah, you've got, you've got parents that are, and I kind of went on a little mini rant on Facebook about this. Uh, it's, it's a lot like the incident with uh, the gorilla, um, Harambe, the one who had to be, who had to be shot and and put down as a precautionary measure. It's the fact that it's it's this ridiculous media trope that there always has to be something about an incident that was preventable. There always has to be someone to blame. There always has to be an angle to generate discussion. And in both cases, you it came back to you, well, what were the parents doing? Okay. Um, the zoo one, I will kind of give you. I will kind of grant you that one because... In zoos nationwide, parent, more parents than not every year manage to successfully keep their children out of animal enclosures. Um, so, so there's there's maybe I, I, a little bit there's maybe a little bit of a a little bit of a point there. However, when it comes to this particular incident, um, the parents were right there by their child. The, they they were right there keeping an keeping an eye on and, the poor Sean, lad. Sean, let me say this: people are like, oh well, you know, it's Florida. There's gators everywhere, you know, and the, and there were signs. I'm like, let me explain something. This was the Grand Floridian Walt Disney Resort. This was not. They were not on some sort of gator boat out right. in the bayou. They were they, they were not out hunting wild boar. They were not boa constrictor hunting. They were at a resort. And the kid was not, like, you know, all the way out in the deep. He was within, like, maybe less than a foot of water. Um, where they were, where, where, just so you understand, this isn't, like, just, like, some beach far off where no one can see it. They were holding an event there. My wife and I have walked mm-hmm. to that beach. Mm-hmm. Anybody, I mean, if you're talking about a gator just coming up out of the water and attacking somebody, anybody could have been attacked. And it didn't have to be that oh, right. kid in the water. It could have come all the way out. Once again, not a shark. Uh, right, and and what's more, it's it's not exactly the first place where you would expect um, a perfect prehistoric eating machine to come leaping out of the water looking for din din. It, it, right. it just doesn't it just doesn't happen. Um, it's but you know much like out here in Arizona, how we have the same issues with the likes of scorpions, rattlesnakes, to a lesser extent javelina. It's just something that you have to accept as a possibility. Sure. Right. And you assume it's a clean park and that they've gotten all the wildlife out of there. And that's just the sad reality of the situation is Disney does its best and has a full-time crew trying to keep the alligators out, but you're not going to get them all out. You're just not. And who, well, you know, right. and and who buys a house thinking that a gator is going to show up one day, hello, who's <laughs> coming for dinner? Right. Well, exactly, and that's the moral of the story that I'm kind of getting at, is there is entropy in the world, folks. There is not always something that could have been prevented. Sometimes 
shit does in fact happen. And it wasn't because someone was asleep at the wheel either. Sometimes it really is just pure randomness. Yeah. And you know, that's actually that's actually not um speaking of causality. You might say that's a big theme of this year's season of Orange is the New Black. Um, In fact, if I really had to boil this season down to three words, I would, well, four words, I should say, I would say it comes down to change, consequences, and loneliness, which is a very stark polar opposite departure from the previous season in which we had theme upon theme built upon faith and family. This is the exact opposite. This, uh, Mark, I think you would agree, was truly a game-changing year for Orange is the New Black, and I think it's a year in which we're going to see this from here on out become a very starkly different series from what we've seen the, the previous three years prior to this one. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I was I've been reading a lot of uh, reviews of it this year, and I said this was the least silliest of the of the. Um, it's funny, it's a funny thing to say, but it's a show about prison. But uh, it, this is the least silliest of the uh, season so far, and it, and I think that's going to set set the trend going forward. Well, I think it. I think it kind of had to. Um, for several reasons that we'll get into as we discuss the show. Uh, first off, the obvious warning. Uh, spoilers from here on out. Big spoilers. We're not going... Since this year we're boiling everything down to just one episode talking about the entire season, we're not going to talk about every single story arc. We're going to limit it mostly to the big overarching ones that develop from episodes one through 13 and a few smaller ones that contribute to building to the events of the finale in which everything goes straight up volcanic and threatens to really tear the entire prison asunder. So if you have not watched the season yet, my big question would be, what in the name of sunny side up Jesus are you doing listening to this show? <laughs> not that I don't appreciate it. Not that I don't appreciate the download, but go get the to Netflix, watch the show, have a snack. We will be here when you're done. Come right on back. But, to give everybody just a little bit of a quick recap of the big, big things that have happened so far. And I mean the short, short Cliff Notes version. Uh, Orange is the New Black began, of course, with Piper Chapman, who is the fictional analog of a real-life woman named Piper Kerman, who wrote a real-life book called Orange is the New Black that I strongly recommend you all go and check out, uh, is currently serving, Mark, what was it? I believe it was supposed to be a 15-month sentence Correct. A 15-month sentence on drug trafficking charges. Uh, She got nicked just barely before the statute of limitations would have expired, and she would have been immune from prosecution. 
in that time, uh, once she was in the joint, she was reunited with her estranged, on-again, off-again, very jaded ex-lover, Alex Voss, and has forged some very conflicted interlocking relationships with the prisoners, the prison staff, and as much as on this show she's been a focus point in terms of her personal development, she has also been a force of nature who has pretty much made sure that Litchfield ain't never going to be the goddamn same. <laughs> um, the previous season, right when we left, Right when we left off, the most important things to note were the fact that, number one, the prisoners had discovered a hole in the fence that allowed them to briefly run off into the woods and just have themselves a little beach party and swim and frolic and jump around in the lake and build sand poopy castles and what and whatever. Um, if you're a fan of the Netflix of the YouTube show Sequelitis with uh, Aaron Ego Raptor Hansen, you know the Poopy Castles reference. Not going to explain it. Um, um, Black Cindy uh, got baptized. Not baptized. She was uh, she converted to Judaism, right? That that allowed her that, to, to do a ceremony. Yes, that's that's another one. Um, just kind of right along. Right along the lines with that, yes, Black Cindy uh, was baptized into Judaism. That started out simply as a scheme for her to have pretty much an ironclad way to get um, a yummy kosher meal at mealtime as opposed to the slop that Litchfield began serving after after being uh, privatized and taken over by MCC. But it's now become a full-fledged part of her character and a part of her personal identity. Again, those themes of faith. Uh, Another one of the big arcs throughout the season was that the prison instituted a – and, Mark, you may have a better word to describe this than than I do – a prison labor program in which the inmates were put to work sewing fancy fancy underthings for the fictitious uh, fashion label Whispers. Uh, During this time, Piper, being the enterprising little little scheming pain-in-the-ass minx that she is, uh, noted that with the fabric that that they were throwing out, you could actually make several other whole pairs of bras and panties. Uh, More specifically, she came up with a scheme in which she would have her fellow inmates uh, wear the panties around, get them good and various kinds of soiled, and proceed to smuggle them out of the prison to her hipster brother, Cal, who would then find a way to sell them online, filter money back to her, which she would in turn would pocket the better part of it for, for herself, and then pay off the rest of her the rest of her complicit inmates. At the end of last season, 
Piper exercised quite the little counterplay when this hot little Aussie number, I forget exactly what her name was, as it turns out, was siphoning off outright stealing a good portion of a good portion of her cash and then planning to just abscond with it when she was released or when she was supposed to be released rather. Uh, Piper essentially narked her out, got her sh- got her shuffled down to uh I believe it was either to the Max or to Max or Max. Yeah, it was, Max. yeah, uh got her yeah, got her shunted down to Max. And essentially that is where we Oh, wait, you know what? No, that's not exactly where we picked up because in the midst of all this, all this chaos. And by the way, let's also not forget that so that a uh, certain celebrity prisoner by the name of Judy King, who we'll get to a little bit later in the show, uh, was also set to self-surrender and begin her own stay at Litchfield on tax evasion charges. Uh, she's one of many elements that are almost painfully on the nose about this season, but still <laughs> manages to be uh, to be almost surprisingly entertaining, uh, if we're to be honest about it. But... In the midst of all this, in the midst of all this chaos, you have a celebrity prisoner who's arriving. You have uh, prisoners who are escaping in mass to go splishy splash down down in the lake, and you have a prison hottie who is being shuffled down to down to Max, courtesy of Piper. Also, oh, by the way. All of the veteran guards have walked out. Pretty much on the spot, just all decided, fuck this noise. We're sick of these poorly trained noobs that you stuck us with. We're sick of all of your shit, just in, gen- just in general. So, bye! And that is where we pick up with season four. Literally, we're picking up this, se- picking up this season right with pretty much everybody being herded back being herded back from the beach uh we have a cadre of reinforce of guard reinforcements coming from the men's maximum security camp no that doesn't prove problematic at all and we also have have a flood of surprise new inmates arriving along with the aforementioned the aforementioned celebrity prisoner, Judy King. Mark, uh, did I leave anything out initially, or am I pretty much on track so far? Um, other than some relationships that formed at the very end of the season, um, if you'll permit me, uh, Soso and Puse got together. Um, that was a that was a season long thing with Soso sort of trying to find herself in the prison, and um, Puse trying to find love and. Um, her subsequent uh, alcoholism, and they uh, they end up becoming a pair. And Soso is sort of drawn into the the black group, uh, despite not being black because she's with Jose. Um, and yeah, she did leave out a very important thing. Uh, the very last time we see Alex before the season ends, she's done being murdered by one of Cupra's uh, henchmen. Ah, uh, I didn't leave that off because I was getting to that part. 
Okay. I was getting to that. <laughs> um, okay. Um, what I'm going to do here is, in the interest of getting to the entire show within the time that we have allotted, um, I'm going to go from general to specific. I'm going to start with the big overarching stories that develop throughout the entire season and really collide increasingly toward the end. And then we'll get into talking about some of the more compelling personal stories that really fed that. Um, in, in a way, I guess you could say we're, we're first going to look at the forest and then kind of zoom in on the trees. Because really, you have, you have two big rivers that are sort of meandering increasingly toward one another. Um, on the one side, you have the upheaval among the prison staff and the administration. Again, at this point, uh, Caputo is now the warden, or I believe, what was the title? Director of Human Operations? Uh, human Activity. Something like that. Uh, human activity, thank you. Human operations. <laughs> Makes him sound like a goddamn surgeon. Uh, but, yeah, so that's his official title, but in his mind, he has, he has of course, decided that, again, uh, per, per side boob, he's the fucking award. And so, again, what we have at the start of the season is the familiar guards have walked out. They're going to be replaced by a combination of, again, transplants from the male maximum security camp, uh, the poorly trained noobs that we really met last season, and a number of new hires who are the product of a well of a really well-meaning plan uh, to try to give dependable, secure jobs to veterans. Sounds good on the surface. Um, what we ultimately end up with is we end up seeing these impressionable new guards being sort of swept up to varying to varying results in a culture of largely more brutal and often racist guards or, or coworkers than they're accustomed to dealing to dealing with with the previous um, more experienced COs um, and. You know, they're certainly bringing an attitude to Litchfield that is, Mark. I, I, I think you would agree would is markedly out of out of place in a women's minimum or medium or medium security prison, especially our newly introduced guard captain uh, Piscatella. Um. Yes. However, this is also the state of Florida where one of the one of the prisons there were one of the women's prisons there was an alarming number of rapes and forced drug smuggling going on. So 
So I, I mean, give me uh, give me about on a scale of like like, like one to ten as, as you were watching this season and you were seeing what what the tone of the new regime of COs was. Um, one being one being fuck you, nothing works that way, to number 10, yeah, that's pretty much about it, uh, about about how kind of true to life do you think that roughly that roughly was for, for the kind of tone you would see in a facility like that? Well, I think that as far as the guards go, it was kind of dead on. Um, not so much in the, in the county jail situation where I work, but from what I've been told of prisons, my experience um, and my, my knowledge of prisons and having read about them, um, you know, the stuff that's come out over the last couple of years in the Florida DOC. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, you're, you're paying like minimum wage for people to watch, you know, to watch these prisoners. And they're sometimes they're, they're just as bad as the people that they're, if not worse than the people that they're minding after. So, you know, Piscatelli, was probably dead on. Um, he, you know, he was kind of a horror show and, and that was about accurate where I started to lose my patience was with the company itself. I think it's MCC, I think is the name mm-hmm. of the um, name of the, of the actual company. And yep. Yep. my frustration there was I've worked for two different uh, correctional healthcare uh, privatization companies. Now, um, I haven't worked for the kind of company that this is where they own the whole prison, like, like say, GeoCare. Uh, however, I've worked for just the ones that do uh, health care, and it's not as dehumanizing as they're making it out to be. And to, there, there's some degrees of truth there, but, they, you know, there are, there are cases, like, we'll get into it probably later where they start talking about uh, they get rid of whispers and they bring in the construction quote unquote class. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to say every prison is like this, but there are definitely some prisons where and they, they, there's a legitimate, legitimate attempt to rehabilitate people. And there are actual classes available where, you know, people get their GEDs. I've heard people getting their law license, their, their law degrees while they're in prison. So mm-hmm. that, I, I kind of looked at that and when you're, you're, you're making the company so over the top villainous that it's not altogether believable. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, what we have here is we have a change from a set of veteran CEOs who are quite grounded in the prison culture enough so that Several of them have earned, to 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 varying extents, the respect and trust of the inmates, but also know where to kind of plant their heels firmly and draw a line and push back, but also to just what an extent they need to push back. Uh, certain exceptions, such as porn stash, of course, being acknowledged. Because uh, let's face it, at this point we're 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 just about out of devices where he can be allowed near Litchfield ever again. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the thing. 
Yeah, yeah. If, if, if pretty much, if he darkens their doorway again, we're straining credulity. Um, not that there aren't other elements I'll get to that kind of stuck out to me to various extents. But you brought on a combination of very impressionable green CEOs who are really still kind of finding their feet in this environment and becoming accustomed to it. And you've decided that to lead them, we're going to employ people that cannot wield power responsibly. Yeah, to, to, with, to, with, with few exceptions to any degree whatsoever. Um, you, have, you have a couple of them. Uh, Bailey, as we see, is kind of able to keep his head screwed on straight and, and not get sucked in by all this. And uh, the one other female guard that seems to kind of bond with Maritza a little bit. Right. Uh, you're right. And when you also see, as we'll discuss in a little bit, we see even Donuts kind of find himself a little bit of a conscience. But uh, we see that there are consequences to the people that we've handed to handing these people this much power without really taking the time to properly vet them out. Now, on the other side, the very first seed that really gets planted is, as you mentioned, the fact that one of the first, one of the biggest initial stories that we see initiated among the inmates is Alex, uh, played by Laura Prepon, of course, and uh, Lolly, who is played by Lori Petty, um, suddenly have to cover up the fact that they have killed a hitman disguised as a guard in self-defense. Because this was, as we learn later, an actual former associate of Alex's that Kubra has sent to infiltrate the prison and uh, silence her permanently. And he ends up be ends up being killed, and the solution that a combination of Frida, Frida, Lolly, and Alex come up with is they're basically going to go the Dexter Morgan route. And uh, well, correction, it's more of a combination uh, Dexter Morgan secret window because. They found a way to fertilize the corn, guys. <laughs> what didn't that coming in, real hey. good, coming in real good this season. Um, they uh, well, first they send a couple well-timed texts in order to throw Kubra off their trail, and then uh, they <laughs> they go to town in their own personal surgeon simulator. Um. To no less than the tune of Last Resort by Papa Roach. Which yeah. really guys I enjoyed really that. Um I just I imagine, I'm just imagining like Genji Cohen seeing that scene and turning to look at whoever ter- chose that song and whoever chose it just saying, I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because if you if you've never heard it, first off, congratulations. Um, 
but second, it's it's this it's this really shitty heavy rap rock song from the uh, early two thousands that it that's you know some spiky haired doofus. The chorus is him screaming, "Cut my life into pieces! This is my last resort." Um, and that's what plays over the closing moments of the first episode while they're butchering the hitman. Um, like I said, this season gets a little bit on the nose. Um, so that's something that everything brilliantly comes back around to full circle with a handful of references to it throughout the season. Um, it becomes a big part of Red's arc throughout the season is helping Frida, Alex, and Lolly to maintain their cover-up. Uh, to to no pleasure on her part whatsoever, I might add. But well, ultimately, the big, uh, it leads to Neely's big arc as well. I'm sorry. I said ultimately, it, play, it plays a huge role in what happens to Healy. Oh, it, oh, it does. It, it plays a massive role in what happens in what happens to Healy. Uh, but again, we'll we'll get to all that because again, right now I'm trying to stay focused on the two major ones. The other big storyline that kind of sweeps up almost everything from the inmate side is a a, a rapidly escalating kind of uh we'll call it the tribal warfare uh because let's let's call it what it is it's ba- it basically becomes a race war um and it's one that is battled with the latinas on one side and the whites on the other and the blacks largely in the middle as kind of, if you'll forgive the alliteration, collateral casualties of the crossfire between the two. The way that this, the way that this sparks is the fact that with the massive new influx of inmates that, that MCC has begun in order to get you know, every bit of bang for their buck as far as how many prisoners they can shove into this one facility. Uh, The two, and and forgive me, the the way I'm going to go about this is I'm going to explain this in a manner that, as I was thinking about it earlier, it harkens to an episode of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which... By the way, just a little personal plug, we get no promotional consideration or anything, but just because I am a huge fan, go listen. It's uh, The best way I can describe it is it's like hearing Charles Dickens do a dramatic reading of a college history textbook. Um, it is that compelling. The episodes are like two or three hours at a time. So they're great to have on while you're working. Uh, but it's it's uninterrupted, no commercial interruptions from him, no plugs, just uh, this amazing narration of great eras, great battles, great conflicts, great, uh, great cultural revolutions in, in history. Uh, you can find it on the... Uh, on the iTunes store. I imagine you can probably find it on Stitcher. Um, you can look up Hardcore History online, download episodes directly from the website. Just go. Check it out after the show. Absolutely wonderful. Anyway, 
So what has happened is with this prison population boom, the whites and the Latinas both at the same time experience a massive population, population surge that grows their power in numbers. At the same time, what happens here is that with this, this big population surge and having more bodies behind them, and uh, uh, by the way, forgive me, Mark, if I, and feel free to jump in and correct me if I get the Latinas' names mixed up. I think I've got them right in my notes, but I, I kind of forgot to go back and check them. Uh, Ruiz emerges this season as a major character in that she's the one who really gets behind the notion as the population grows that she can start her own business, her own little business, her own little illicit smuggling venture to compete with Piper's underwear scheme. What happens is unfortunately we see that Piper has grown big enough for her britches that she she has become flat out fucking delusional. She has actually bought completely 100% into her own hype. That she is somehow, somehow now the feared boss of a prison syndicate. And so she takes this personally. And so as a means of trying to wipe out her competition and supposedly to send some kind of a message, she schemes to place Ruiz squarely on the CO's radar as a gang leader, which once Piscatella becomes aware of it, uh, proceeds to result in her having three to five years added to her sentence. Now, Ruiz being a mother, as she points out, that means that her daughter is going to be in kindergarten by the time she gets out. This is when Ruiz really decides to escalate things herself. First off, after basically being run out of the underwear trade, she steps up the business to become a full-fledged, illicit drug-running front. In the meantime, what happens is that Piper seeks a way to both consolidate and grow her own power in the form of getting in Piscatella's ear and convincing him of the merits of allowing her to form her own personally run anti-gang task force. Of course, like it does, this breaks down into into Piper's task force turning into a white power group. To borrow a phrase from one of my favorite internet reviewers, Todd in the Shadows, Piper tried to make scrambled eggs and instead contracted syphilis. (laughs) This leads to a rapidly percolating open war between the Latinas and the whites, in which the whites largely manage to have the power of the guards on their side. So as the physical violence steps up, reaching at one point a sort of secondary peak, 
in which several openly white supremacist members of Piper's task force uh, sent Flores tumbling down a flight of down a flight of stairs. This leads to Ruiz authorizing an out-and-out physical retaliation directly against Piper, specifically in one of the most both compelling and utterly chilling moments of the show. She's held down and has her forearm fire-branded with a swastika. This is the moment when Piper truly begins to realize how far over her head she is and just what a destructive force she has really become. Because at this point, she really hasn't listened to the advice she was given when she got there, which was keep your head down, make the most of this time, don't get close to anybody, don't piss anybody off, don't be, don't drown in the fishbowl and just wait your time out. Just run out the clock. No, Piper can't do that. And again, caught in the middle of all of this, you have the blacks who are on the receiving end of a lesser degree of taunting and bullying from both sides. Uh, From the Latina end, it manifests mostly as the blacks being run out of the TV room. From the white end, it's more just direct epithets, taunting, the occasional little bit of physicality. But for the most part, early on, they're a non-party to this. They're literally caught in the middle. What ultimately happens is that toward the end of the season, everything reaches a boiling point, a boiling point that was lar- that it was largely heated to by the discovery of the gu- of the dead guard leading to a full-fledged prison lockdown. In the course of the lockdown, as a means of generating some entertainment, a particularly disturbed guard named Humphreys. We'll get to that little sick puppy in just a minute. Um, Initiates more or less a a pit fight between Suzanne and Suzanne's spurned, somewhat psychologically disturbed ex-lover, Cucudio. Uh, A fight which leads to Suzanne beating Cucudio to... That is literally a bloody pulp as I could possibly describe in the stop, stop, she just might already be dead sense. Spoiler, she isn't. She doesn't actually die. Um, that, of course, leads to more heat being brought down on, being brought down on the guards, um, a, cont- a more strained relationship between Caputo and the guards. And eventually, as the tensions continue to mount, the gangs, as we'll go ahead and call them, the tribes, all sit down for a peace summit and decide that they have to form a united front to change the regime of the COs. They have to stand together or they're going to fall together. 
What ultimately happens is a show of passive resistance. Essentially, the inmates, in a reference to a punch to a punishment that's heaped upon first Flores and then Chapman earlier in the season, they all choose to stand atop the tables in defiance of the guards and refuse to move until, in particular, Piscatella resigned as guard captain. This leads to Piscatella calling in reinforcements. It leads to it leads to a struggle in which, at one point, Pousset has to be physically restrained by restrained by a rather impressionable but impressionable but overall hum, harmless guard named Humphrey, not Humphreys, I'm sorry, Bailey. However, unfortunately, tragically, Pousset being crushed to death while Bailey is trying to fight off Suzanne, who feels the need to jump in and try to physically protect Pousset. This le- this leads to a tense, se- what was it, several days in the final episode? Yeah. Before, yeah, a uh, tense several days in which the entire prison is put on a complete no one gets in, no one gets out lockdown. Pousset's body is deliberately not being removed from the cafeteria while MCC and Caputo well, there's no other way to put it. They try to get their story straight, shall we say, and eventually leads to an all-out riot at the end when, during Caputo's presser, he declares that he declares that Bailey not only will not be fired, he'll barely be punished. At this point, Tasty, who has been serving all season as Caputo's personalist, personal assistant can stand no more after the loss of her best friend and informs, well, informs the gentle way of putting it, riles the entire prison into nothing short of a volcanic united eruption, which leads to a, to a moment at the end in which all three of them converge down respective hallways, manage to trap them, to trap Humphreys, who, against his colleague's better advice, has smuggled a sidearm with him into the prison. And we close, well, aside from what is the utterly poignant, almost tear-jerking final image of Pousset, on no less than Daya, of all people, managing to secure, to secure the sidearm after it's knocked away from Humphreys, and standing over him with it pointed squarely at his head, and every inmate in Litchfield surrounding her, urging her to just pull the trigger. Those uh, now, now, Mark. I mean, those are the those are the big stories. But you know, I I think you would agree with me. It really is absolutely stunning watching this entire season. As at this point, three seasons worth of actions, decisions, and consequences all come to a head, leave very little standing in their wake, and lead to oh, what can only be described as the destruction of Litchfield as we know it. Yeah, I think um, the line that sums up the entire season for me is when. Um, this is when the, the warden Caputo 
yeah, Caputo. Um, yeah. I don't know why I would have forgotten his name. Is when Caputo goes back. To, Remember his name. <laughs> is when he goes back to his former boss's house, and uh, he says, you know, I misjudged you, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. This job is impossible. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and I and I think in a lot of ways that that does sum up everything. It's what a balancing act you have between. Um, I mean, it was one thing when it was a state-run facility, it was a government-run facility, federal government. Once they brought in MCC and you had, you know, and you had all these different mandates, uh, and you had the last season, you had Birbiglia as the representative of the company. This this season, the company's sort of uh, avatar is Linda from Purchasing, who <laughs> the actress playing her is phenomenal. She really, she does a great job of not understanding the implications of what she's doing. She's, you know, she is in many ways the prototypical uh, big business person. You know, they're looking at the bottom line, they're looking at uh, the numbers, and they're not thinking about the people. And, you know, I've been where where Caputo is, where you where you're there for the people, and you recognize them as people, and you're surrounded by those who, you know, who don't share the same philosophy as you. Um, you know, what are they? They're barcodes, basically. They're numbers. They're widgets. So, and, and I, I and, think that to me says it all. And, and yet, I mean, everybody who tries to ambitiously change that status quo, I mean, well-intentioned all the way around, make no mistake, but God heaven, if they don't just make things worse. It was very true to life. I mean, um, in the short time, and again, I'm talking about just the medical provider. In the short time that I worked for two different companies, I've seen, I've seen the uh, health services administrator, which is basically the top muckety muck of of, a, of that particular um, contract. I, I've seen them. Uh, I, I've I've seen two and three of them you know, take the job and leave the job in a single year. Mm-hmm. I mean, never never mind the uh, the lay people, you know, the nurses or the therapists or the doctors or whatever. We can't keep management in the position. It just chews them up and yeah. spits them out. Does it does it just happen that sometimes the idealism just kind of gets kicked out of some people after a while? Um, I don't even think it's that. It's you're you're asked to just do I, I guess an impossible task. You know, you're you're managing you're 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 told manage this population with as few resources as possible. <laughs> you know, so, and don't let anyone die. So there's there's kind of no mitigation of expectations. Yeah. Um, um and it's a lot of and and when the shit hits the fan, the, that was the funny thing about the whole Poussey death. Uh, as I was watching, and I was like, "Yeah, that's about right." Um, you know, instead of recognizing that a human being has died, you know, they start looking for who they can blame and how they can spin it. Uh, yeah, yeah. How are we go- how are we going to cover our ass? Right. Um, which man, they even had to really reach when they did that because on the one side. As they as they out and out no, 
Poussey wasn't even in there for a particularly serious offense. It was possession and trespassing. Um, didn't really have a long list of priors up of priors after that. Uh, was pretty much an academic rock star when she was a kid. Um, you know, overall pleasant demeanor, just a, just a general model prisoner, not a troublemaker by any means. And they even had to really stretch it with Bailey because, as we learn in his flashback, he was a, a dim-witted but overall kind of harmless slacker teenager and 20-something who just kind of landed at Litchfield because it was something to do. It was there. Because, yeah, yeah, it was there. What the hell else was he going to do? was he going to do with his life but he didn't have these laundry lists of other fatal flaws that the likes of donuts and humps and piscatella all happen to have or even just the the general lazy stupid apathy of loose check he genuinely wanted to do a good job it's just that it was a situation where he more or less did everything right and everything still went sideways. Um, which, you know what, that, that's a good segue into maybe going from kind of an opposite direction order of when I'd want to do things. But like I said, there are a lot of individual stories on both the prison staff side and the inmate side that really feed into this. And everybody's consequences just come together to just raise the temperature on this one after another in their own way. Uh, hell, let's, let's start with Caputo. Uh, he has it in his mind, his somewhat noble intention, that he wants to at least better the humane treatment of the prisoners as the warden and has some ideas for how he can help them really make the most of this time constructively. Um, It's an idea that he takes to MCC and they take it and they twist it into something that only deepens the resentment. It goes from give them academic programs, give them arts education, give them something that will put them on a track toward finding a different road when they get out that won't lead them back to this camp. And MCC takes it, and their response is, huh, oh, well, fuck all that noise. Much cheaper to just go with vocational training. Teach them to dig dig ditches. Train them as construction workers. And it's all blue-collar, hands-on hands-on stuff, and along the way, hey, let's have basically free prison labor just masquerade as a teaching opportunity. In this case, with having them build a new dorm to stuff more prisoners into and and deepen the overcrowding. Um, along the way, he, he also has his motivations and his own moral compass thrown by the fact that, hey, Caputo sprouts a love life. Um, Beer Can got himself a steady. Uh, 
what's worse, um, he's dipping his tall boy in the company ink. Um, he's, uh, I'm sorry, what's, uh, Linda, is that her name? Linda from Purchasing. Uh, Linda from Purchasing, yes. Um, who turns out to be, well, a Machiavellian psychopath. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, as people try to warn Caputo about, uh, she is about just one person and one person only, and that is Linda from Purchasing. We see that she will maneuver anything and everything she has to right down to her very own nethers uh, to further her position of looking like an indispensable leader um, to the MCC corporate board. Uh, She doesn't hesitate to throw, to pull a gun on Mrs. Bursette when she shows up on their doorstep. And by that point, she has Caputo so wrapped around her little finger that they decide it's time for just a little bit of stressed-out humpity-bumpity. <laughs> well, he did think that was hot. That that fucking got him hot. You pulled a <laughs> gun on someone. The hell? Um, well, you know, we all have our kinks, as they say. Which, that's your kink. I... Uh, never mind. Not even going there. Um, but uh, it's just, hey, whatever bakes your ZD, Mark. <laughs> um, Not my king. <laughs> just saying, we all got them. Well, and of course, you know, you're the one that lives basically in America's hell mouth of crazy. Um, but and at that point. You know, he's he's so blind to everything and so all over the place that it's not until it's too late that he can see how unstable everything has become all around him. And it ends with him utterly failing the inmates in the one moment when he could have done right by them. And that was when, during the presser, when he went off book... I think everybody who watched that was expecting him to say our terrible mistake was we put people in charge of these inmates that should have never been given that authority, who should have never been given this kind of power. That power was abused. A young woman is dead, and now that is not only on their head, but it is on mine. It is as much on theirs as the young man as a young man who is inadvertently responsible for her being crushed to death. That, in so many words, was what I think everybody wanted him to to say. Instead, it was a half-assed version of that in which he, and by extension MCC, assumed only the absolute bare minimum of responsibility, declared that the young man was not was not at fault, that he would be suspended, but not fired and not otherwise punished. And of course, he says all this not realizing that Tasty had ducked herself in the other room to hear hear the press conference. That is obviously when everything runs over and the prisoners just explode with rage. Now, Obviously, though, he's not the only one who fed into this because 
Kiwi is another character who really reached his breaking point this season. In past seasons, we've seen him increasingly grapple with what he perceives as his failure as a person and his having failed the inmates that are in his charge and it leading to an increasing feeling of uselessness that he tries to combat with one avenue after another in which he tries to seize control of his personal life and of his environment. In this instance, he... Boy, did I feel bad for Healy and boy, have I been where he was. Uh, Okay. Tell me, okay. Tell me more. Yeah. Go ahead and explain uh, Healy's arc throughout the season, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, well, to, to sum it up, really, you know, Healy is finding <laughs> Healy is finding out the same thing that I found out, that you go into mental health with the noblest of intentions and you go to, you know, who will speak for the weakest amongst us with no voice? Uh, you know, I will. That's sort of been, you know, my modus operandi. You know, who will speak for the voiceless? Somebody has to. Uh, if not, they will be crushed. And so, um, you know, that, that's where I found myself when I got into social work. And, you know, and also, as a, and, and many times, you know, this happens too, is, you know, we who have had some interesting upbringings, we'll, we'll call it, um, you know, we go into therapy ourselves and then we decide to turn around and try to help other people. And so we have Healy, whose mother was mentally ill, persistently mentally ill, and will eventually leave him, causing him an enormous amount of guilt. Guilt he shouldn't have had, but guilt nonetheless. You know, and feeling like, well, you know, maybe I can, you know, I could have, maybe if I had had the kind of power to do so, I could have helped my mother, and instead I will try to help other people. Um, and so, you know, he finds himself, um, we take a little detour where we see he's always had really terrible boundary issues, um, you know, dating, dating one of his clients and all, which is very unethical. In fact, you can lose your license for that sort of thing. Uh, it's caught. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, he thinks he's found his mother and he hasn't. And, you know, ultimately this leads, to, you know, Healy's whole story is trying to find meaning in what he does, trying to save the people around him. And uh, he sort of takes on Lolly as his project, you know, and he convinces Lolly that they, she didn't murder anybody and this, that, and the other thing. And, of course, he finds out that she absolutely did. Or at least she uh, she assisted, because I think finally uh, Laura Fafon's character uh, does the deed uh, when he <laughs> when he comes back to life later on the ep- later on in a different episode. Um, in any case, that where we find Healy at the end of the season is that he just feels utterly useless. He feels failed. You know, he has failed at relationships. He has failed at boundaries. He has failed to save anybody. He's looking at he's looking at his profession, he's looking at his career and he's saying, I have absolutely no ability to affect change. Um, In just a small way, you know, he tries to help over the course of four seasons, we just see him try to help people only to have them concerned with very, you know, like he tries to help Doggett and Doggett, you know, wants very um, solid things. She's not interested in bettering herself as a human being, at least not with his help. She, you know, she wants candy. She wants stuff. Same thing with Tasty. Same thing with some of these other people. They always want something out of him. They don't necessarily want to have him help them better themselves as people. 
And it can be mm-hmm. frustrating. I have absolutely been there. You know, when you're thinking like, what, what, do, what am I doing all of this for? When I can't help anybody uh, for whatever the reasons are. So, and then at the end of it, he, uh, he just sort of throws up his hands, gives up and he enters the psychiatric facility. <laughs> yeah. well, I have, I've handled it differently. <laughs> but, but, but I certainly sympathize. Um, yeah, Lolly really kind of becomes the ultimate symbol of what he sees as his failure, a mental health professional. Um, and again, a lot, a lot of this kind of comes back to consequences of of actions. And as we learn in his flashback, in his case. Healy, in a way, is a consequence of somebody else's actions. He's, he, we see that much of the way that he is today is a consequence of the way that his father dealt with his mother's lesbianism. And the way that his mother dealt with it and the feeling, and Healy's feeling, that he failed his mother. Um, and as a result, Healy ultimately ends up feeling absolutely as lonely as anybody. Um, but he's certainly not the only one uh, who's sort of coping with coping with both in that way. Um, I was giggling to myself. I was giggling to myself. I was I was thinking of. Um, the fat comic book guy from The Simpsons, as the, as the world is ending, and he goes, ah, I've wasted my life. That's kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah, in his own way. Um, uh, but I mean, by the end of the by the end of the season, Bailey, who for most of the year has been kind of viewed as one of one of one of the few kind of bright spots among the guards. One of the few people was seemingly a little bit of, a little bit of optimism, a little bit of good in him and an unwillingness to abuse his authority. By the end, you have Caputo trying to warn him that if he cares about that spark, that he needs to put as much distance between himself and Litchfield as possible. And unfortunately, what was that? That's a very true statement. It, yeah. um, and, it sucks the humanity out of you. Well, yeah, it, it does. But unfortunately, Caputo kind of warns him too late. Um, and, you know, it's, and again, it, it wasn't that this was that what happened to Pousset was something that Bailey wanted to happen. All he was trying to do, and you know, having a father who was a police officer, it's something that I that I've seen plenty that I've seen plenty of times. All he was trying to do was just securely incapacitate her so that she couldn't hurt him or herself. He wasn't trying to inflict serious harm. It just happened as Suzanne, who was also meaning well, um, again, consequences uh, came after Bailey and unwittingly ended up just pressing him harder and harder against her body until she could 
like until she couldn't breathe, which, again, eye-rollingly on-the-nose police brutality reference for those of you who watch the headlines. Believe me, it's not the only one. But, um, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, But by the end, he's left with the fact that whether intentional or not, he's taken a life and he's clearly the only, and he feels like the only one who really feels the way he does about it because even when he's being dropped off, you've got this, uh, this, you know, fat fuck vet from Afghanistan who's likening what he did to some of the utterly sick, deplorable war criminal shit that he and his buddies perpetrated over there and just tells him, you got to get over it. Get over it. No, no, he, no, he's not you, you sick son of a bitch. That's not what this was. This was not an incident wherein you, wherein you clearly snuck up on your conscience with a slapjack and stuffed it in a potato sack. And as you put it, decided to have a kid juggle live grenades. This was somebody who wasn't out to take a life, who wasn't out to hurt somebody, who was just trying to defend himself, defend himself, who knew that that person didn't deserve to, didn't deserve to die. But instead, nevertheless, there she is, dead technically by his hand. But he's also not the only one who feels a sense of guilt, though, in that we're also left with the ramifications of – I forget what his actual name is, but we'll just call him what the show calls him, Donuts, Uh, as Donuts, Boo, and Dogget. I'm hereby not going to call her Pensatucky because she has really transcended that part of her character by this point. She is just dogged from now on. Um, are left to deal with their respective fallouts from him raping Doggett toward the end of the last season, and then Doggett more or less trying to kill the guy by running the van into a wall. Um, Doggett, despite having a, a surprising friend and and confidant in Boo uh, still at times feels very alone and helpless, especially when in the early part of the season, uh, Maritza is put in charge of the van and Donuts is in charge of overseeing her. And she's left to feel helpless in that she's the only one who really fully understands what he's capable of and what he might do to, Another really very harmless woman, somebody who would really never mean violence on anybody. As we find out, she's basically there because she's an inept con one. And she just feels entirely on an island because she feels like there's nothing that she can do about it. And... Donuts is has his own sense of loneliness and consequence to deal with because of his choices in terms of the fact that he knows what he did 
but the thing is, the really unexpected thing about this is he feels terrible about it. He feels bad about it because, as he admits to Doggett later, he realizes that he actually does feel something for her, but he's also aware that he has a problem, a problem that will only bring more ruin and more harm upon her. And so he's left, you know, wanting to be near her as he might, with no choice except to try to apologize to her and then resolve that if he really cares about her, he has to stay away from her. It's really very moving and an interesting turn for a character that I, that I closed season three rightfully despising. I'm rightfully feeling like, hmm, serves your rights, fucker. Uh, sorry, no pity here, all dried up. Um, but then on the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, we have Humphrey. Oh, fuck me sideways without the benefit of a reach around. We have Humphrey. Humphrey is the new guard who who is put in charge of Maritza at one point. Humphrey sees the inmates as his plaything. I'm pretty sure if Humphrey had his, had his way, Humphrey would probably skin a few of them and wear them as festive hats. He is a sick fucker. He has no qualms about abusing them, torture, <laughs> torturing them, demeaning them any way that he possibly can. The real high point of his season is that at one point when he's on to Maritza and her role in Ruiz's newfound drug smuggling ring using the van to get the goods off campus, or I should say on to and off of campus, uh, Ultimately, his means of trying to get a confession out of her. And if you are squeamish, now's a good time to go listen to Hardcore History, guys. Might want to fast forward a little bit here. Um, Because at one point, he overhears um, one of Maritza's typically typically colorful and kind of weird conversations – with uh, Flocka. This is a great season for these two, by the way, full full of lots of hilarious dialogue. Um, you have in which um, it, it's a it's a game called Gun to Your Head, and one of the choices they have is: Do you eat something like eleven dead flies or one live baby rat? Um, and and Maritza, weird little bit of logic as she kind of has, happens to choose baby rat because, as she puts it, it would go down like eating a giant jelly baby. Yeah, uh, Humphrey arranges this, puts a literal gun to her head, and makes her choose. She chose the baby rat. It did not go down like a jelly baby. 
Humphrey is a sick, sick man. And, again, he makes choices. He chooses to view women as things, playthings, specifically, that has consequences. The consequence being that he is left all alone with a sidearm that he smuggled in against his colleague's advice, and when it gets flung away from him, Gaia scoops it up, points it right at his head, and we're all hoping that the season is going to end with a bang. It does not. We have to wait a year. But that's I, I don't think I missed anybody, Mark, but I think that's kind of everybody on the prison staff, except for Piscatella, who is the only one who seemingly really faces no consequences by the end of the season. In fact, he's suspended. Yeah, he's told to go home. Yeah, he, well, he is, but, you know, he doesn't really seem defeated. It it seems more than anything, more than anything else, like basically he's damn near overthrown Caputo. He, he's he's yeah. just about seized power. Um, yeah, I would say that that's true. Um, though Caputo sort of comes back at the end and says, you know, what, you know, how is it that that the that a guard at the max men's prison ends up here. You've got skeletons and I know them now, you know, I can play this game too. So I don't, his story is not over there. There, you know, Oh no. You know, he'll be back. Well, hell, you know that MCC will probably bring him back. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting yeah. then, because it started out, they were allies and, you know, and obviously he saw value in having him there. You know, it's at the start of the season, it was, I need some heavy hands. The prison's gone crazy. And, you know, and what he got, he got what he wanted. But, you know, it's, it's always, uh, that, that's always a thing, isn't it? Is, uh, is the, um, you know, be careful what you wish for. So uh, they start off as allies and end uh, as opponents. And it'll be curious to see that relationship continue into the next uh, season or two. You know, but the funny thing is, he actually had one of my one of my favorite moments of dialogue of the entire season, and that is when Piper is doing her stupid little flirting thing with him, and he says, "You know," he says, "You know what?" He says, "You know when I was in high school, I had two beards: the one on my face and the one I took to junior prom. That's right. I'm into guys. I will never find you adorable." <laughs> Because the weirdest thing about this show is at this point, the, the ensemble cast of supporting characters has grown to basically become the audience's voice about regarding Piper. Just one line after another at this point, virtually without exception. Um, but speaking of which, uh, that brings me to a little bit of a revelation that I kind of had about the story progression on Orange is the New Black. And I can't believe it didn't strike me until just this season. And that is, is that every season we've, we've had some fluctuations in how much we've maybe emphasized certain characters. And as I'll get to toward the end of the show, 
there's a really weird fact that Piper has really become virtually almost an unimportant afterthought of a character um, and more of a plot device as opposed to the focal point that she was kind of intended to be. Um, But it's the fact that the, the same characters almost every season will be the ones making the moves that really advance and pivot the plot. Um, and it's almost without exception. And those are Piper, Alex, Red, to a lesser extent, Bursette, and the four core black characters. In this case, uh, Piper's arc throughout the season is she has become drunk with panty power. Not so much drunk. She is shit-faced with a lampshade on her head riding a goat with panty power. (laughs) She is out her goddamn mind. She thinks she is Suge Knight wedged into the body of Taylor Swift. She gets that kicked out of her right quick. She forms this task force. Along the way, she tries to recruit... Um, the heavy young Hawaiian girl as her muscle, as her protection, and proceeds to piss her off further and further until she defects right over to the Latinas. And it eventually leads to her finally having the realization she knew, that eventually you just knew she had to. And that is... I have fucked up in hitherto unheard of fashion. Just, she, you can tell that she has come to realize absolutely everything I have touched since I came here has turned to shit. Everybody who has walked out of my life has been better off without me. Um, and uh, you know, she oddly enough, at the end of the season, she's one of the only ones who really doesn't feel alone because once more, she got Alex back. Fucking hell, how do you keep getting her back? Because <laughs> our character is how just does, crazy. How? The heart wants what the Alex, heart wants, Sean. Yes, but at some point <laughs> Yes, but at some point the body has to the, the mind has to say no. It can, but as a girl once told me, I've always thought to think with my heart and not my mind and I promptly shot back, "Yes, that's why you're in therapy. You keep using the wrong organ for the wrong job." I'll give her this. She at least she at the very least did not expect her task force to turn into a burgeoning white supremacist group. Um, on the other hand, Alex throughout the course of the season really has a story that doesn't exactly progress a whole lot episode by episode. 
Um, it's just that it's just her ongoing guilt, her ongoing paranoia, and ultimately she doesn't end up alone, but Lolly really does. Um, oh, Lolly! Lo- the Lolly and Healy story spoke to me just because of what I do for a living, but Lolly especially, Lolly especially made me sad. I cried a lot in that episode. Um, I, I'm not ashamed to say. Um, I, I mean, I just, just through the course of my profession, I know that person, you know, the person who means well and develops schizophrenia and your life just goes to shit and, you know, and how the system, you know, and that whole idea of, them trying, you know, the, despite the, despite the disease, despite the voices and all of that, they try to make a life for themselves, and society just won't let them. You know, that little bit with the cops there, that uh, that spoke right that spoke right to me. I was like, yep, that's that's how it is. You know, and, and I and that's not to say anything about the police; they were doing their job as well. But you know, it's just we have this sort of weird dynamic now between uh you know between the people and the police and it's not always a great dynamic with when it comes to consequences it's they're both spending kind of the entire season dealing with the consequences of their cover up and you know and then the choice that they make that really was hardly a choice at all it was just pure survival and by the end of it we see that Lolly is already paying the consequences and has ended up alone and we can kind of only suspect based on what we know of their history that it's only a matter of time before Alex ends up alone but moving on that leads us to one of the characters that really kind of defies the whole the whole expectation of loneliness throughout the season. And that's Red. Uh, she sort of takes an involvement in Alex and Lolly's cover-up in no small part because her garden club is involved. And what they've done could potentially have consequences for all of them, from Frida to her right on down the line, as they've all become implicated by association in it. But along the way, as she continues in her newly resumed role heading up the kitchen, she also resumes a role as becoming the glue that really unites the gang and holds the prison family together and ultimately ends up being one of the more courageous voices that has to fight for Litchfield as she knows as she's come to know it and by the end feels tired and like she has no more fight left in her and like she is alone only to have that be disproven by having every one of the inmates at her back propping her up. Um, And that in itself was really quite touching. Uh, Elsewhere, you want to talk about loneliness and consequences of actions, Bursett is both paying the consequences of her own actions in terms of defending herself against the violent bigotry that she had to endure last season um, and obviously that she's locked up in the shoe, but she's also locked up there and had to face that in part because 
Gloria who rallied that bigotry against her. And Bursette goes from really being truly alone to ultimately becoming a symbol that awakens Caputo's conscience and and spurs him onward. Um, She becomes kind of a catalyst for Caputo's renewed desire to reform what he sees around him and clean this mess up. On the other hand, we then have the blacks and their own storylines. And what you have there is really Black Cindy, she's mostly largely forgettable this season. She's stuck in this, again, very on-the-nose, extremely stupid plot with a newly added black Muslim inmate uh, who, you know, she's stuck in it. She's stuck in an odd couple cellmate situation, and I'm sure there was probably some thrown-out storyline where the two of them win the WWF Tag Team Championship on on Raw. I'm just guessing here. You can decide which one is supposed to be Stone Cold Steve Austin and which one is supposed to be Shawn Michaels. I don't know. Um, But the other more important ones are Suzanne throughout the season is mostly a side story, um, especially in terms of her fractured relationship with the equally mentally unstable Cucudio, which leaves them both feeling very alone at times in terms of the fact that they both thought that they had really found that one last love who sort of gets their weirdness. Um, who doesn't think they're lesser for being different. And Suzanne really ends up feeling truly, truly alone by the end because in short order, she's been forced to beat Kakudio nearly to death and I think knows on a certain level that she was indirectly responsible for Pousset's death. And as we find out, that to her harkens back to the incident, which was really hard to watch, uh, where we finally find out why she landed in prison in the first place, which was that at one point while she was left alone by her foster sister to kind of fend for herself for a weekend while she and her boyfriend went went out of town, uh, she happened to meet a young boy that she recognized as a customer at the big at the big box retailer where she was employed as a greeter. Uh, she pals around with him for a little bit, invites him over to her place to play video games, um, attempts to assume that he's going to stay for the entire weekend and play with her. The young boy goes to call 911 because he feels threatened. Uh, she she, try, she tries to kind of run after him, him around the apartment to find out what's going on because she's feeling betrayed. 
and it leads to him attempting to escape from her and ultimately plunging to his death from a fire escape. So this is the situation that leaves Suzanne feeling broken by the end of the season to the point that after being responsible for Pusey's death, she suffers a break in which she starts insisting on wanting to feel what it's like to not be able to breathe, which ultimately leads first to her trying to stack huge heaps of books on top of herself and then later toppling the library bookshelves onto her, nearly killing her until a rather inebriated so-so finds her and manages to get her to medical in time to save her life. Uh, meanwhile, the only other one that we need to talk about before we actually get to Pousset, um, in terms of the blacks anyway, is Tasty gains a position as Caputo's assistant, which is a way for her to make money. It's a way for her to further develop a little bit of a career skill for when she theoretically might get out one day. And so, and it's something that she clearly takes great, genuine, personal pride in doing well. It's a job that she takes seriously. Um, she really tries to drive a lot of and get behind a lot of the positive change that Caputo wants to bring to Litchfield. But ultimately, she ends up also becoming the raging voice of the black resistance after Pousset's death, which obviously hits very hard because they've had one of the most enduring, charming friendships of the entire series, and I admit that from a fan standpoint, it's going to be hard to really think of the show without the two of them. It's it's jarring to try to imagine that. And that, of course, brings us to Pousset herself. There's an old theory among a lot of fiction in that the happier peer, the more assured you can bet it is that or rather, the more the more dire the tragedy they're going to experience, and throughout <laughs> and throughout, no, oh, but it's it's kind of true. I mean, I'm, no, just, I'm laughing because you're associating this with Pousset, and you still really took the words out of my mouth. She's the only innocent that she's the only innocent in the show. She's never done anything wrong in four seasons, no. and she's the one that buys it. No, the, the worst you can say about her is that the previous season, uh, she had to come face-to-face with crippling loneliness of her own, which, of course, fuels her alcoholism, which by this point she's in full-fledged recovery from. And she's seeking something constructive to fill that void in her life. And throughout the season, the two places she seeks it from is... Um, her attempts to initiate a friendship with Judy King, her, you know, her, her uh, domestic lifestyle idol and her growing really very sweet, very heartfelt, very real romance with Soso who has begun to find her own meaning 
in her life when she too was adrift to the point where by the end of the season, if anybody out there has ever watched um, season five or season six rather of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you saw this coming a continent away. Because all you remembered was Willow and Tara. And then one gunshot later, spoilers, there was just Willow. Um, except in this case, Sarah is not going to go on a magical-fueled rampage in which she flays an idiot nerd alive before burning him to ash. Um, in this case, Soso finds Pusey's hooch and goes off and gets drunk and then ends up saving Suzanne's life. Anyway, digression over. Um, Pusey has been an innocent for the entire show. Um, right down to even in what you have to presume is going to be one of the last times we probably ever see her, except for probably rare flashback appearances. Uh, she's happy. She has a relationship. She has gotten to meet her idol. Life is good for both of them. No fucking way it was going to last. Hell no. Absolutely not. However, I could make jokes about it. I could point out how, yes, it was utterly obnoxious and preachy. What a reference it it was to. I forget the fellow. I forget the fellow's name from I believe uh, Baltimore. It was. Um. But the last episode, the flashback in which you see. Not only that Pusey, right before she was, you know, she committed the trespassing and possession offense that sent her to prison, was having basically the best accidental night of her life in New York, even managing to briefly cross paths with Bailey in the course of it. The show ends. Like it, the the image of Daya putting the gun to Humphrey's head, it fades to a flashback of Pusey smiling and looking out across. Forgive me, Mark. I'm not a New Yorker. I would imagine it would be either the Hudson or the East River. I'm just guessing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, again, not a New Yorker. I apologize to anybody out to anybody out out there who's gonna get butt hurt about it. Pat, calm my tits, you pedantic bastard. I didn't mean any offense by it. By the way, Mets suck. Um, but um, and that's the image that the season closes on. Is after all this chaos is her looking, not coincidentally, happier than she has probably ever been in her life. 
more than likely moments before her life would change forever. Because, of course, had it not been for that trespass, had it not been for that possession, she would have never ended up in Litchfield. That is striking. And that, of course, brings us to the last of the major inmate stories for this season, and that is the Ballad of Judy King. Oh, boy. I have no idea which two personalities you could possibly be parodying. <laughs> can I, Judy can I say King, something about Mr. Judy King? Go ahead. I'm, uh, I was going to say just the brief explanation of it for those of you who did not watch season three is Judy is, like I said, a domestic lifestyle magnate who goes to prison for prison for tax evasion um, and also happens to be the kind of southern dingbat racist old lady who will swear up and down that she's not that she's not a racist and she can totally prove it by this count of how many black friends and employees she has. Uh, ugh. <laughs> Sound like anybody else you might have heard of? Um, she is shuffled off to, shuffled off to Litchfield in. I'm sorry. What has got to be the shortest goddamn full-fledged federal prison sentence that anybody has ever served? I think it amounts to a matter of weeks. Um, <laughs> in which. NCC sees to it that she's, it, it, it's, it's like prison fantasy camp for her, okay? That, that's basically what this is. This is the correctional equivalent to out-of-shape 45-year-olds who back in the day would pay what some people have to, have to splurge for a month on car and student loan payments so that they could go shag fly balls from fucking Willie Mays, Willie Mays and, you know, Mickey Mantle and their other baseball heroes. Um, that's basically what this is to her. She gets her own private, she gets her own private room. She gets her own private whitey roommate that she in no way totally didn't try to subtly not really suggest um, in the form of, uh, Jones, who has her own little break from her happy-go-hippie lifestyle in which she realizes that she kind of dates materialism. Um, you know, having a seltzer machine is kind of cool. It's kind of nice having eggs. <laughs> um, um, and of course, it's a whole weird saga because at one point, and keep in mind, this is all with a full-fledged race war brewing. Um, it makes national headlines that somebody discovered an old segment from a kid's show she used to host. Um, a segment in which that, that, that involves a phenomenally racist black puppet um, 
who apparently devoured her imaginary watermelon friend. <laughs> yes, this happened. Um, which Judy proceeds to brush off and just blame it entirely on having done lots of coke back in the day. Makes coke sense to me. Make, coke doesn't make you racist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, make you make sure. too bad it does, but it doesn't make you fucking racist. <laughs> um, I'm totally. By the way, by the, that's not my excuse for anything. The coke made me do it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, um, and this starts off as being just about to set the blacks off looking for her hide, but then they ultimately. But then she helps them make money by staging a tab, a fake lesbian prison romance for the tabloids. Yes, really. And basically helping them theoretically make shit tons of money hand over fist by selling the photo using a cell phone that somebody or another illegally smuggled in. Lots of cell phones get smuggled around the prison this season. It's it might as well be a T-Mobile store. Um, but basically, what happens is by the end of the season, yeah, she has managed to maneuver for her release within the span of what has to be about a month or so. I mean. Mark, am I wrong? That's about how long it feels like this season takes place over the course of. Yeah, it doesn't. It, first of all, Piper's 18-month sentence is the longest I've ever seen. Dear, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get to that in a, we'll get to that in a second because that kind of plays into my feelings about why the show is taking on the new tone that it is. But go on. Um, but yeah, as much as Piper's 18-month sentence seems like it's going on five years, yeah, hers was she was there for a week and a half. It's like... <laughs> Like, listen, two weeks prison. That's it. That's all you got. It's look, jail, that's one thing. You can bail somebody out of jail. I I, I get Lindsay Lohan or Paris Hilton and Floyd fucking Mayweather doing what they have to do to get their jail time shortened. Like we're talking like immediately after they're arrested or after the judge sentences them to it. That shit happens. We're talking well, about actually- the jail can actually release you. The jail can basically, uh, I mean, with, with, I, I think there are some rules to it, but ultimately the people in charge of the jail can give you a notice to appear and send you on your merry way. Right. But we're talking about like the times when it wasn't even a notice to appear thing. It was a thing where it went to trial. Judge said, nope, you go into jail. Um, and... Lo and behold, you know, the, the little socialites go on their merry way. But this is a federal prison sentence. <laughs> you were there a week and a half for a crime <laughs> you admitted to. You pled guilty to it. I was going to say, I think she gets a deal, doesn't she? So she, gets, so she got like a sweetheart prison deal of, you know, Who 20 minutes. Who <laughs> is her lawyer? Here, Judy, 20 minutes in a federal prison. Can you handle that? Why shower? Line up the blacks. I love them. I, 
I want her lawyer. I want her lawyer so I can go on the mother of all nut-kicking sprees across Phoenix and fucking fucking get off with barely a weekend spent in prison. Sean's going to have his own personal purge. (laughs) My God, yeah. I would surrender myself myself on Friday. Don't worry, guys. I'll be out on Raw in time to catch Raw. I'll be out on Monday in time to catch Raw. Uh, FYI, 10 minutes of live time left. Okay. Um, so that's basically the gist of it. And in fact, at the end at the end of the season, before we have to get into the recorded time in just a little bit, uh, Judy is being released and is trying to hurry her way right all the way the fuck out of Litchfield as the shit is, as the shit is hitting the fan and spraying corn and nuts everywhere. Um <laughs> <laughs> and it's what one of the most glorious moments of the entire season. She comes to the nexus of the three hallways. She sees she sees like the blacks coming down one way. She stops, unleashes about a gigaton of green apple splatters in her in her pantsuit. Turns the other way. Oh look, it's the whiteies. But uh oh, they look pissed. Turns the other way. Oh shit, it's the brown people. God damn. Um, and then as they all converge and all of a sudden the attention is turned to Humphrey and not her, she does what I can only describe as the equivalent of a Homer walking backwards and just melding into the Flanders bushes. <laughs> just, just falls right back into the... Solid Snake would be proud of that disappearing act. Didn't even need a cardboard fucking box. She's all all like, yeah, let's kill him. Yeah, me too, boss. You know. (laughs) And and she was never heard from again. (laughs) So so anyway, um, that's really kind of where the story ends the story ends up. And there are some other important things that happen throughout the season that we didn't have time to really get into all that much. There's the return of Nichols basically yeah. af- basically after Luth check has a bout of conscience and gets her and gets her sprung. Um spoiler, the short story is um she's still a horny lesbian with a drug problem. Um there are, are some other little plot threads and what and whatnot here and there. It, it, if you like Marita and Flaka, great, great season for them. Just because they're they're cute as a bug's ear in the first place. But then when <laughs> when they're giving themselves facials and sitting there trying to practice their on camera crying for in case news crews want to interview them. God, I love those two. Just give them their own spinoff. You have uh, Gaia's mother gets released from prison, um, and Aleda, oddly enough, kind of becomes determined to really make something of herself and wants to open a nail salon. Um, But it really leaves kind of Gaia without a compass, and hence she's easily sucked in by Ruiz and kind of becomes somewhat of a foot soldier 
in her operation and does some very undialike things like that don't involve drawing cute little chibi characters with great with great big eyes the size of grandfather clock faces um, and all kinds of stuff like stuff like that there, there's even some kind of funny interactions throughout the season between Caputo and the uh, the former guard that he runs across working day jobs. Uh, my favorite one is the one female guard who's a crossing guard and recognizes him as he's driving by. <laughs> she mutters something like, I can't believe he actually stopped. <laughs> um, but, okay, so uh, I'm going to take care of this right now so Mark doesn't have to. Uh, we're down to less than 10 minutes of live time left, as as he said. Thank you to each and every one of you who listened live. Uh, the wrap-up is going to be fairly short, so you're going to have to possibly download the episode later to hear the rest of it. I apologize. I'm still working on keeping things to a format. But by all means, tune in, because I guarantee you we're going to have some interesting things to say about this season and where we think that the show goes from here. That being said, uh, Mark, give me your thoughts on your favorite individual stories, both from the guard side and the inmate side? Um, I think, like I said, Lolly's story broke my heart. Uh, Healy's story was all too familiar and depressing. I like the Judy King character. I, you know, as much as this season got as close to Oz as it's ever going to go, I mean, I didn't, I knew about, I had read about the Piper branding scene and I guess my reaction to it was, and I'm not a cold person or whatever, but, and we are talking about a fictional character who did things that brought this upon herself. And I kind of sat there and went like, well, you know, that's what happens. You know, this, this wasn't, this, this wasn't some, you know, some of the scenes in Oz where people got, you know, where, where people got raped, where you're like, well, like, oh, they didn't deserve that. Right. This, she, she entered into a gang war. Um, and then she didn't even have enough uh, sense to stick with it. She, you know, she tried to play both sides of, oh, I'm not racist. Meanwhile, I want to be a kingpin. Um, so it was like, so I, when it got to the branding, I was like, eh, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you gamble your chips, you take chances, I guess. Um, I wasn't as, and then the subsequent crack smoking scene, it was nice. I was, you know, it was, I was happy to see the character sort of, get to a point where they have a kind of come to Jesus, you know, crack confused or otherwise. But um, <laughs> by the end of it, I thought I, you know, I remember I put on Facebook that I absolutely hated Piper in the first couple of scenes. But after the branding, she's fine. She, she sort of finds her moral compass again. Um, when she's up there with, uh, it's Maria. No, no, not Maria. Um, she's up there with the, uh, the character who, who, Stink you causes herself to stink so she doesn't get felt up all the time. So I thought they did her story in the one of the last seasons where she ends up becoming like a kingpin on on her own. So I was a little confused to see her then caring caring for the old woman, but whatever. Um, uh, but my my point is I thought Piper redeemed herself and I hated the character less by the end of it. But the two but like I said Healy's Healy's story. Uh, Lolly's story. I thought the Judy King character added a lot of levity to a season that was more serious than the other seasons. Um, and, you know, overall, I really enjoyed this. And as much as Poussey was not necessarily like, 
you know, if you say, like, oh, who's your favorite character on Orange is the New Black? Who say would not have been in my top ten? <laughs> but I didn't hmm. like the character. She, she was just kind of there. Um, you know, she was part of yeah. the ensemble. Yeah. The actress that plays her does a great job. But when she died, because, you know, to me, it's an innocent. And an innocent that dies makes me, you know, it breaks my heart. So sure. that was sort of my reaction to that. I, you know, and as you, that, that's why I giggled before when you were like, you know, the character in fiction, the happiest character, the, mo- the, the he who is most innocent will surely meet his doom. <laughs> so, right. Um, right. So I, uh, I was very sad to see her go, though I was not at all interested in her flashback. I mean, I, I, I got what they were supposed to make, make you feel, and it was fine, and I went with it. But I was, you know, it was a, of all the things happening in that episode, her flashback was not something that interested me. Um, See, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really, I really liked it for some reason. I don't know why, because I mean, the flashbacks. Thankfully, that's um, a tool they mostly stayed away from this season compared to the last three, uh, to a to a large degree. Not completely, but there weren't nearly as many in part because I think we're running out of interesting stories to flash back and tell. But uh, hers was, I would, I think I liked it because it felt to me like a very fitting farewell. Sure. That's what I'm not really complaining Mm. about it. I can be interested. I can not be interested in something that's done well. Uh, I want to say this Mm. before we run out of time. Doggett's story was also very particularly interesting to me. Um, it's yes, interesting. Yes. In 2016, we have a we have a character who forgives her rapist, and still likes mm. the guy. And I thought the interactions with Boo, you know, Boo who is so militant and unforgiving, and, uh, and and all of that, is caught between wanting to be friends with Doggett but having her own personal convictions of this shall not, you know, this shall not pass. And right, it's like right. you know. And I, the day, Doggett has to remind her, but I'm not asking you to accept him. I'm asking you to accept me. Um, so and it was just, it's weird because I mean, how, because a show that has a lot, I mean, the feminist icon has also become, you know, the icon for transgender in that, in, in the Brissett character who I, I need to talk about mm-hmm. real quick. Um, and I am surprised that we haven't heard more hue and cry from the feminists saying, no, 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 no. This is a terrible thing to have a character for giving her rapist. Um, but I thought the, the writers did a very good job of not making him seem, seem overly sympathetic, but at least making him seem not completely like a piece of shit. You know, he made a egregious, terrible, immoral error. He knows that. And, and as reminded, one that he'll be living with for the rest of his life. Right. You know, he, he truly he truly knows that he made a terrible, terrible mistake and you know, he he try he is trying to own up uh, and atone for it. Um so I like I liked that story. I mean this was probably the season where all of the side stories I pretty much liked. There wasn't anything where it was like, Oh, every time we got to this one character I went, Oh for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think that I, I think I've kind of been frustrated by that in past seasons a little more than you have, um, but this is the first of the four. Well, the, I should say the second of the four seasons, wherein I didn't have to go back and watch it a second time to appreciate it fully. 
Um, seasons two and three, I appreciate. I I definitely enjoyed them more on a second viewing than I did on the first one. Um, in part because, well, as you said, there were certain there were certain threads or certain people where I was just like, God, everything grinds to a halt. Every second you're on screen. I just go away. I never want to see you again. <laughs> this season, no. There, there were certainly some arcs that I was more intrigued by than others. Um, and I, I'm definitely with you when it comes to Doggett because I've come to realize Taryn Manning may just have a great deal of untapped potential as an actress. Um and may one day be bound for bigger things after this show ends because she's transcended what was initially uh, almost a a comic relief um, villain character. Just a a random sack of insane religious fundamentalist crazy Um. To actually completely turn around my view of her, and it's it's happened so subtly it seems, without just necessarily one single dramatic moment, that actually I like her. I'm rooting for her. Right. Exactly. I got to talk about Bursette now. Bursette is a character I had zero interest in. You know, I we're we're transgender is concerned. My 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 opinion is these are people who should treat them as people. And that's kind of where it ends. Um, well and I don't care where any, that, and I don't care where anyone pees. <laughs> Rattling and broadcasting, pee where you like. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I had uh, up to this point, I had zero interest in her character. I didn't think she was in any compelling storyline, et cetera, et cetera. This season, because they have her as sort of the icon for you know, how do you deal with transgendered folks in the in a uh, in a correctional environment? You know, Sean, to, today I had to tell a, a person who had taken hormones to grow breasts but still had a penis that I don't care what you identify as person, you're going to the male dorm and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> hope, hope you can bond out quickly. And they were and they right. were legitimately worried about having to go to a male dorm. They identified as a female. They had, you know, the, this person had breasts and was identifying as a female. But because uh, they ha- she hadn't, I'm gonna go with she here. She hadn't fully transitioned. As far as the the, the jail is concerned, she's a man. And how dehumanizing mm-hmm. and how horrible that must be for a person to go through in here. And I sound like an unsympathetic jerk, but I'm just trying to do my job. I don't make the rules there. I unfortunately have to abide by them and make people understand that it's that or, and this is what I'm getting to and why I, and why the Bursette character uh, in this season truly had my sympathy. Your, your choices are to go to general population and deal with whatever humiliation comes out of that uh, or go into isolation. The last season, Bursette chose isolation. She chose protective custody. And, you know, it is what it is. It's you, a cell, your belongings, and that's it. Yep. And, you know, we wonder why, 
the inmates smear shit and flood and set things on. Oh, I've never really seen anyone set anything on fire. That that was dramatic for the sake of the show. But if they were really showing you what it's like in a prison or a jail, she'd have smeared poop everywhere. You know, if you ever um, if you ever watch uh, the movie Quills, the Marquis decides that once they take yeah, his, yeah. his quills and, and scrolls, he uh, he writes first he he writes in, in shit on the wall, yeah. and then at the end he writes in blood because he is compelled to. He must write. And it, it's a very similar thing. Devoid of all stimuli, the mind will create something because it must. It, you know, we are social beings. We don't do well with zero stimuli. And yet, uh, in order to, quote, unquote, protect these people, we put them in cages and give them nothing and then expect them to deal with it. And the, right. and right. the guards are just as callous and cold, you know, a, a, as they are in real life. And, I, and, it's, and it's horrible. And again, you know, transgender people are no different than you and I. Some of them are complete assholes. Others, you know, others are perfectly decent human beings, just like the rest of the scope of humanity. And nobody fucking deserves that. You know, just, just because you are, just because you are a thing, we're going to treat you this way, regardless of whether or not you deserve it. It's horrible. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not up here, you know, fighting for the transgender cause, other than to say you should treat them as people. So mm-hmm. I was happy mm-hmm. they dealt with that in this season the way that they did, and that was about as accurate a portrayal of ever, I've ever seen. I would have liked I would have liked Brissette to be a little bit more crazy, by the way, so a little bit more drooling, foam hip of mouth, <laughs> hearing voices, crazy would have been perfect. Well, you know, I'm glad well, you, you know, brought Brissette up because, because that's a nice transition a nice to what would probably, arguably, be my biggest complaint about the season. And that is that it's noble in its intent to try to confront a number of very volatile and yet very pivotal social issues. I get that. However, it's about as subtle as your typical law and order plot. Um, there's no sense of it necessarily trying to be realistic. There, uh, there are some moments in some movies and some shows that I've seen where the intent is so clearly lampshaded that in almost one single line delivery, you can lose any admiration I might have for what you're trying to accomplish with subtext. Good example, in Twilight New Moon, it's not a lifestyle choice, Bella. <laughs> says the shirtless young guy who's running around in the Washington woods with other shirtless buff. I have I seen bro kicks from Seamus that were more subtle. I, um, I don't know what you're getting at, John. <laughs> are you, are you, um, you trying to say it's a little gay? <laughs> little homo? Little? <laughs> um... And in this season, if it wasn't in some of the events, it was in one single line from a character that I'm indifferent towards that you openly detest. I forget what the hell her name is. Um, the black track star, the one who had arguably... Janae. Yeah, Janae, the, the one who had... The, the one who had arguably the least interesting flashback of the entire series. 
Yeah. Black lives don't matter. <laughs> oh, dear God. Look, it... I don't want... <laughs> Look, see my comments about transgender people. Black people are people, too, and I want them to be treated as people. But boy, do I have yeah. less sympathy towards people if you speak that way. You know what? You're, you're a show that's trying to attempt, a dramatic show that's trying to attempt a modicum of social commentary. Okay, the closest equivalent I can come up to, I can come to with that line is not the aforementioned, the aforementioned Dingleberry from a Twilight movie. No, it's this little gem. Some of you might recognize where you've heard this one. I don't know if it's a black thing or a woman thing, but I'm mad as hell. <laughs> I don't care what you say, and I don't want to get into a big fight about that. I think that line's funny. Fuck your couch. That is the most shoehorned, obvious, ham-fisted pot shot at the internet that they could have possibly managed to wedge into that movie. Uh, and I, it's, it's, and again, there's on the nose, and then there's that. It, just, black lives don't matter. It's that's about how fucking subtle you were being. I mean, <laughs> it's it's bad enough that in the course of this movie, the, the show has been on now in the span of yeah, five years now. Man, we've worked a lot. Of, we've time traveled and spent time and space to work a whole lot of events that happened in that happened in 2015 or 2016 into what should be, well, 2012. (laughs) I mean, come fucking on. Give me a goddamn break. It's getting to where that's that's right up there with something else very minor that irritates me, and I hear this all the time, and that is no rhyme or reason to when the Latinas go into and out of Spanish. <laughs> None. It always annoys me. It, it's one of those things where it's kind of like how in movies or in a lot of TV shows, as a matter of fact, anytime you have a character from some non-UK part of Europe, if they have to start speaking English, it's automatically with a British accent. <laughs> they could be from fucking Zagreb, Croatia, and they will and they will sound like a Mancunian. <laughs> I I just it annoys me. It's subtle, but it's like if you if you listen to real people who are you know either predominantly Spanish speakers or bilingual speak about Spanish and English. English evenly, and they're around other Spanish speakers. It's not like they'll all of a sudden, for one key sentence, just drop into English and then go right back to Spanish, especially when they're around other English speakers. It's much more like with Flores's flashback, where, by the way, we finally meet Diablo and we find out she's got kind of an awesome backstory. Where, yeah, if they want it to be just private and they're around a gringo, no, they'll just stick to Spanish. Hmm. It's, it's, it's not, 
it's not like blah, 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 Spanish, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah? Well, I think blah, 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 Spanish, blah, 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 blah. doesn't work like that. That's not the way people talk. But anyway, um, to kind of start to wrap this up, here's my thoughts on where the show goes from here. This is the difference between Orange is the New Black and a lot of other ensemble dramas, like, say, Mad Men, for example, um, or Sons of Anarchy. Those are ensemble shows where you expect the group of characters is going to be together indefinitely. There's nothing that says that they're going to be definitely parted at this point or that point. No, this is a show that's a little bit more like Glee or Community or Saved by the Bell or any other show where you're limited by a very finite set of time when realistically you're expecting this bunch of people to be together. And that is that after a while, if you're not careful, you have to start concocting increasingly convoluted reasons to keep them all in that environment. Um, Hell, community actually kind of made that into a joke, but in its later seasons. Um, But in this case, we're talking about a show where you have to expect that at various staggered points, realistically, these characters are going to be parted for one of several reasons. People get released. People die. People get sent to Max. People get sent to the shoe. Sentences get commuted. All of these things happen. And hence, you're going to lose some of that, lose some of that chemistry which is why I think it's important that you start doing what WWE has never learned to do, and that's build up some new focal points to get people used to. Because if you want to end this show and Piper's sentence is done, that's fine. But after five years, she's still serving that same 18 months. This is going to become problematic in about another season or two. <laughs> you pull the rabbit out of your hat by making this one good. That's admirable. That's that's great. But this is like when we got kids on a show, you know, now they well, they're all in their 30s and they have to play high school students. Right. Well, and a lot of these characters now that we know some of the things they're in for, you know some of them are not going to be in forever. I mean, Bursette is in for credit card fraud. And with the MCC thing, eventually you're going to lose one of the biggest iconic stars of your show in Laverne Cox. Um, Nichols, okay, there's a realistic lifer. Um you've got to think that Tasty is one of the inmates where eventually if they start running out of room, they're going to go, well, what's she in for? Oh, seriously? Oh, cut her loose. Now she's in for violation of parole. They've already let her out once. Right. Um, Well, Piper, again, another one where it's extremely limited. Um, Well, well, they have an out with Piper. 
where if they really feel the need, and I and I'll and I'll and I'll go as far as to say I don't feel like after one more season I don't feel like they need Piper anymore. I think they can get on without her. But let's just say there's right. an executive at Netflix that says, you know, if it ain't white, it ain't right, and you know, like with no Piper, no 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 show, they have an app. They've already set this up where um, they said they can add more time if she uh, if she lies under oath or refuses to testify and you know, or whatever. And if you'll remember in the second season, she didn't really come clean. She ended up not giving them any information at all. Um, and so she, so her life is spared by Cooper because she doesn't testify against him, but they could go back to that and say that because of that, she has to do X amount of, excuse me, X amount more time. Okay. Well, another example, look at Maritza. Now that we know, again, what she's in for, we basically know she's in because she botched an auto heist. She's basically in prison because she's a moron. <laughs> um, you got to think that there's definitely a pretty set amount of time on Flocka's sentence because, yeah, she... She sold somebody some bonus, not really drug drugs, and <laughs> that that placebo effect was a motherfucker, um, because 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 he decided to play Chris Benoit off a rooftop, um, which led to the obvious conclusion, um. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is people who are in there for pretty petty, non-violent, non-violent offenses. So you kind of have to do what Glee was sort of trying to do um, right before Corey Montius' death, and that is you try to kind of ensure a line of succession. Um. Uh, again, it's what WWE has failed has failed to do. Grasp the idea that okay, our focal point isn't going to be around to get forever. We better have somebody we can slot right in there. Um, but once you do that, I think this becomes a different show in terms of the fact that we're getting to the point where if you don't come up with an end game soon, it's just kind of going to keep meandering to the point that you're going to lose focus of how you even got here in the first place. And that's when your support is really going to be weakened. Um, So I like this direction. I like that everything is starting to come to a head, but it makes me wonder how much longer can they keep this up? Uh, we shall see. I mean, you know, strange things have happened with television. <laughs> so. Yeah, but I mean, but, but this is, this is kind of one of the, one of the interesting things about this whole era of online streaming exclusives is, you know, when you're talking about network television, you can sort of tell when it's time to, to put the old dog down when the ratings start flagging, when it's not getting, when it's not generating the ad revenue that it used to. Um, 
I'm not really sure what the metric is with online shows. Because, like, for example, uh, last season, you kind of, last season of House of Cards, I have not watched the show yet, so I don't know for sure what happened. But I know I was reading a lot of people saying that it felt like it was really starting to lose its steam. And, in fact, some people were saying hindsight being what it is, what it is, it's kind of been getting weaker every season. So there's that. I mean, Lily Hammer obviously ended. I, I never heard. I don't remember exactly why. But when you have a show like this, I don't know how you kind of tell when it's time. Um unless that's a decision that ultimately it's going to be Genji Cohen that's going to make, which, God, let's hope not, because fucking hell, she let weed go on way too long. But I think that's about uh, that's about all that I've got to say about this season. I will say it was arguably one of my favorites so far, but just... Wow, just an incredible change in tempo, an incredible change in tone. Uh, Some people, I think, might have missed the humor. I really didn't. I thought that it was a welcome shift. It was one that's needed if the show was going to continue. But overall, what did you think? I loved this season. I I thought this was the best season yet. You know, the show, as much as I enjoyed the show the first season... Because we kept going to the Jason Big storyline, who I know you hated. That might have been the character you were referring to, by the way. <laughs> um, kept leaving the prison, which would annoy me. You know, and then the second season, they went full, they, they went full Oz. They, they introduced a supervillain. Um, and then the third season was a, was a radical change in things, and it actually ends with a little bit of hope with them all in the water. This season um, was a tad bleaker. Uh, and, and, and they didn't have to go the supervillain route to show you the sort of um, intrinsic violence that uh, that prison can bring out of people. Overall, uh, you know, I, th- I thought this was the best they've done yet. And I'm really looking, and I know it's been renewed for, I think, two more seasons. And I'm looking forward to see where they're going. I, uh, I have to say, Caputo wrestling with the, with the politics and the dynamics uh, of the prison is probably one of my favorite things about it, but also um, it's one of the only shows out there that's really dealing with the terrible burden of uh, the mentally ill going on in this country, and you know, and how uh, correctional institutions have become the default treatment centers for the mentally ill. You know, in a perfect world, Lolly wouldn't have gone to prison. Lolly would have gotten the treatment that she needs. Uh, but that's just not the way the world works now. So, and let's not forget, you you kind of have no choice but to, oh excuse me, uh, but to sort of kind of feel for Suzanne more and more, which with every season that passes. Yeah, well, I suspect she'll end up in psych next season. I can't see how she avoids it. Um, but with that said, my my final words on this were great season, best yet. Can't wait for the next two. Um, and I'll be interested. To, I'll be interested to see if they if they're brave enough to do to do the series without Piper. 
And you know what? This is one of those times, one of the rare times when you and I have reviewed something, and I think we agree absolutely 100%. I almost want to go back and watch this season in its entirety again, uh, just from the the very beginning. Um, This Utterly, utterly amazing. And, folks, there's all kinds of little things that I'm not even doing justice. Um, you might even dig Lorna's little storyline <laughs> with her weird, with her weird-ass prison marriage. Um, mostly, mostly because I can never give enough Lorna. But, you know, neither here nor there. Anyway, uh, that is going to do it for year four of Litchfield Live. And the first time we've tried to condense this all into one episode. I'm proud of us. Go us. We did a good yeah. thing. And Block Talk, knock on wood, hasn't cut us off yet. Uh, oh, yes. Thank you, merciful Blog Talk. Thank you so much. But that being said, we're going to get in going to get into plugs. Uh Mark, you go ahead and go first, my amigo. Alright, well, I'm gonna keep it really, really, really short and just stick to what you and I do. Um Long Road to Ruin comes back uh in about a month. Uh, it'll be Ghostbusters week here on the Rattled and Broadcasting Network. First, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom, we'll be reviewing the new Death Angel, one of Cooper's choices. Um, myself and Robert Winfrey at Gunpoint will be reviewing the Ghostbusters uh, 2016, The Power of Patty Compels You. And then Sean and I <laughs> will go ahead and, re- and revisit the uh, first two Ghostbusters movies, and then we're going to, as a special attraction, Sean's going to talk about the video game, which serves as sort of a uh, spiritual part three to the Ghostbusters, we'll call it now, trilogy. So, Long Road to Ruin, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2016 Review, and Death Angel, The Evil Divide. That's that's July 19th, July 20th, and July 21st. Um, The next Long Road to Ruin after that will be uh, two weeks later, as we'll be uh, reviewing the new Jason Bourne movie on August 3rd, and then August 4th, we'll be doing The Long Road to Ruin, the Bourne trilogy. The first three movies, not the one with Jeremy Renner. Um, and that's all for now. That's, all, that, that's, what, that's what The Long Road to Ruin is doing uh, for the rest of the summer. Well, all right. Well, okay, all right. I'm going to, okay, I'm going, I'm going to, to keep my plugs fairly short. short. Um, everything um, Mark said. <laughs> Plus, uh, I'm still working on bringing my new podcast to life. We've run into a couple technical hitches, but we're committed to getting it out as soon to getting it out as soon as possible. I'm just trying to get some recording software and other apps worked out. But I've got Jeremy and Ann standing by ready to make the now renamed Charisma Roll a reality, uh, complete with fresh art by Benjamin Cologne, uh, new intro and outro music by an artist to be commissioned, um, and I'm also putting together a blog to coincide with it in the meantime, helping me get some stuff off my, off my chest, uh, some nerdy rantings that otherwise I would just be devoting to Facebook right now. Uh, in the meantime, I've decided that when I can't do plugs of my own, I'm instead going to plug other cool stuff that I have found elsewhere for you all to listen to, watch, read, play, and enjoy. This week, what I'm going to highlight is what has become one of my favorite resources for wrestling information, discussion, and as it turns out, even a brand new indie promotion. 
Uh, I strongly recommend going to YouTube and checking out the What Culture Wrestling channel. Uh, it is primarily run by two wonderful Brits named Adam Pacitti and Adam Blampied. Um It is, again, it's discussion, it's depreciation of history, it's, hu- it's humor, results, news. And as it happens... Uh, this has also got to be one of the first, I hesitate to even call them a dirt sheet, but since it's hard to classify them as much else, um, the first wrestling dirt sheet to found their own wrestling promotion. What culture pro wrestling? Um, this is an actual thing that is going to be launching in Britain and broadcast live on, broadcast for free on YouTube uh, in the very near future, check their YouTube site out for further details. Um, it's gotten so much buzz that, in fact, on their inaugural two shows, uh, the attractions are going to include an ROH title defense by Jay Lethal and an appearance by no less than the intellectual savior of the masses himself, Damian Effing Sandow. Again, this from guys who basically run a dirt sheet. I am just impressed. And by all means, if you're a wrestling fan, get over there and check them out too. Show them some love. Like, comment, subscribe, spread the word of what culture pro wrestling. And that should get you through for just a little bit until the next time we all get together. Folks, thank you all of you who listen live. Thank you all of you who download. Thank you who all of you who like, comment, like, comment, hit us up online. Speaking of which, if you want to talk to me personally and share your thoughts on this season, look me up on Facebook. I am Sean Comer. Since I still have multiple Facebook accounts, but I'm only on one, you want to look for the one that that currently has the lovely and sultry Bayonetta as the avatar, as that's what I've been playing obsessively in my spare time, like hours at a time. It's unhealthy, really. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you again uh, uh, for the mandated reporter. Frankly, he is always wonderfully mortified. Mark Radulich, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for chatting us up. Thank you for supporting the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. Without you, there is no us. This is Sean Comer telling you to geek responsibly and never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. I am the fucking warden. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>